0: Welcome back to the Ancient Health Podcast, where we educate you on real health solutions that will help transform the way you live, feel, and overcome disease naturally. I'm your host, Courtney Versage, along with Dr. Josh Axe and Dr. Chris Motley. We're so happy you've joined us. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back to the Ancient Health Podcast. I'm super pumped to introduce our guest today. Dr. Jade Tita is an integrated physician, author, and expert in the realm of natural health, fitness, metabolism, and self-development. He spent the last 25 years immersed in the study of strength and conditioning – Hormonal metabolism and the psychology of change and success. He's written five books on metabolism and co authored the exercise and sports nutrition chapters of the textbook of natural medicine. His latest book, Next Level Metabolism, has just been released. We were just talking about it, and I can't wait to dive into metabolism, really find out how you ended up in the specialty of female hormones as it relates to metabolism, because I mean, I applaud you as a man for really like going into that territory, but you're helping so many people, including myself. I I was telling you before, I just, I've been following your work for a long time and it has made such an impact on my own personal understanding of my hormones, my metabolism and the choices I'm making day to day. So I can't wait for you to share some of what you've been working on and really what your life's work has amounted to because it's, it's huge and it's making a difference. So welcome to the show.
1: No, oh, thank you. That's so kind and very sweet. And um, it's great to be here with you, Courtney and Chris. Nice to meet you both.
2: And nice to meet you too, Doc. Nice to it's, meet you uh,
1: too. Yeah, you know, I, I love this space and I've been lucky to um do this work. I'm a big fan of Dr. Axe as well. And, you know, we're all just, you know, we're all just trying to learn the best we can. And I love being able to teach and learn same as you. And so, yeah, looking forward to having this uh, conversation.
0: Yeah, I would love if you want to just give our audience, if they're not familiar with female metabolism and hormones, how you really ended up in this space and what it is that you found about it that maybe nobody else has tapped into. It's kind of been the missing link for a lot of people because I know for any female, even males, I mean, not to exclude all the male audience here because you will benefit from this message for sure. But there is a huge disconnect for me. If it was as easy as calories in and calories out, I mean, we wouldn't have a problem of, you know, this, this obesity epidemic that we have and weight loss plateaus I mean, people are trying their best and they're not able to move the needle. So maybe Mm -hmm. explain how you get up here and, and what people might be missing.
1: Yeah, well, you know, what, Courtney, it was exactly what you're talking about. I started out, believe it or not, as a personal trainer at 15 years old. And when people hear that, they go, what? How did that happen? And even I am like, I don't know how that happened either, except that I got very interested in nutrition and training for football in high school. And I got so interested, I was doing reading and paying very close attention to my own performance. And I started writing programs on the off season for guys on my football team, which turned into writing programs and nutrition uh, programs for their uh, mothers and fathers and their family members. And it just extended into undergraduate training. I was uh, doing personal training to pay my way through school, medical school. I was doing personal training and bartending, by the way. So gives you a little bit of my background in psychology and training. But one of the things that happened right away to me, and I'm a little, I'm embarrassed always to say this because, but I'll, I'll just come out and say it. And most people know what this is like. But when I, when I was young, I really was the stereotypical, ignorant, arrogant, meathead guy. Um, and I, I just was, you know, and, and part of what happened was I ran into uh, my female clients and mainly females who were between the ages of about 35 to 55 that I was mostly training because these were the women with the income, these were the women that I was training in um, the physical training spaces. And uh, I was struggling with them um, a lot. And at first, and this is what I'm embarrassed to say, at first I thought it was them. I was just like, they're just lazy and gluttonous and not doing what I'm telling them. And this very arrogant and ignorant way of looking at the world. And really I got brought, (laughs) dragged really, kicking and screaming into this space because uh, women said to me, you don't know what you're doing. How can you help me if you don't even understand what's going on with me? And I quickly started to realize that there was something different about men and women and their metabolism. Now, I know that is still very controversial for whatever reason, but let's just go through this really quickly, just the common sense. Women have two major sex steroids. Men have one right? First of all, women go through four, if not five hormonal stages in their life. Men go through two. Female hormones fluctuate throughout the month. Male hormones stay pretty static throughout the month. Just those three things in general tell you there's something different going on. And what I was seeing was women who would do great at certain times of the month and then fall apart at other part times of the month. I saw that certain ways of training Um, sort of these back then I was doing, this is back when I just followed whatever the the sort of popular thing was. And back then it was low carb and high intensity interval training. Unfortunately, it's still a lot low carb and high intensity interval training. And I say, unfortunately, not because those things don't work. I say, unfortunately, because we're always trying to apply one size fits all band-aids to an infinitely varied population. And that's why it's unfortunate. But to answer your question, what happened is I eventually got out of my ignorant, arrogant male self and started going, "Okay, if I want to help people and I'm not just here for popularity sake and status and to flex my biceps, then I need to start paying attention. And at that time, that was probably around the time I started making that that switch was probably right around the time of 2001, 2002. And I really started paying close attention. But here is what the listeners should know, which is kind of shocking. Back then, it wasn't until 2001, 2002, that a lot of the bodies that looked at research and made recommendations regarding research started to realize that there was a problem. And the problem was that women were drastically, dramatically underrepresented in the research literature. And in fact, we were extrapolating a lot of the literature on young males college-age males, because that's who mostly was being studied in exercise and nutrition research at the time. Certainly not the population of women that I was working with. And so it took a lot of digging at that time to kind of go in and look at what makes female metabolism different. And so um, that gets you to where I am today. So because I was early in this process, I know it's weird maybe for women to look at me and go, Was this guy know about, you know, and it's weird for me too, to talk about menses and menopause, things that I will never experience. But it just so happens that I developed an expertise in this arena and started to get really good results and build a solid reputation in this arena. And so that has really sort of defined my career. And I always find it humorous, but incredibly rewarding. And so I would say I was kind of educated the women I was working with were the ones who educated me and pushed me, um, to, you know, really start paying close attention. And I learned more about metabolism than I ever could imagine through that process.
2: Now with that, with the metabolism doc, when you started to study more with female hormones, when you were talking about how it's more male dominated, I guess, within the research has that been for, I mean, the years in the past, like literally it's but most of the research is in based upon how males and their hormone levels. And that was used to, uh, to determine how you could treat female hormones. So that's, mm. that's how the going in the, in the industry.
1: It's still going that way, Chris. It's wow. still actually that, that way. It's, it's changing. It's changing slowly. I'll give you an example. I launched a program called Metabolic Renewal about four years ago that was, to, to my knowledge and my publisher's knowledge, the first program ever to specifically build nutrition and exercise routines for women, trying to take their unique uh, metabolic realities into account. And there was nothing like that out there. That's only four years ago right? And that, that program has sold millions of copies. Matter of fact, wow. myself and the publisher have been floored by how popular that program has been. And I think the reason it's been so popular is because still no one is really addressing this. And you know what? It makes sense. So I'm not one of these people that, you know, I'm, I just go, it makes sense, right? And here's why it makes sense. Because Truth is, and the three of us, we know this, and I think a lot of the listeners know this as well. There is so much more we don't know about metabolism than what we do know, right? Mm -hmm. And part of that is because when you're doing research on populations, research is a tool for averages. It's not a tool for individuals. And we oftentimes forget this. And so when we're doing research, we're trying to find generalities. We're trying to say what works for most people. And when you have two different uh, sort of gender or sex realities, right? And let's forget about the societal aspects of this, because there's a lot of controversy around gender and anatomical sex, but there are real biological differences that are undisputable in the science. And when you start looking at that between men and women, so you got to go, okay, yes, men and women are different. And not only that, but younger women and younger men are different than older women and older, more mature men. Mm-hmm. And not only that, these different stages affect us. Even if we just look at it like this, just think about as you, as we all go through our lives, like, you know, I'm 48. I told you about my young male, arrogant, ignorant self where everything was vanity driven. That's a different reality when you turn 48 and it's now it's about more purpose driven and there's more stresses and you're trying to make money and you're trying to build a career and people are trying to take care of kids. It's, things change just on that level not to mention physiologically. So the way I look at it is we are all different in what I call the four P's. We are different physiologically, right? Mm -hmm. And especially Mm -hmm. men and women, we talked about some of those physiological differences, but we are. if you go and look into our metabolism, we are as unique as our fingerprint is. Yes, you can look at all of us and say, we're all human. But then you look at the three of us and you say, oh, they're distinctly different. And then if you could zoom in on our, our metabolism, you'd see unique blood sugar responses to the same food you would see unique psychological responses to the same type of stress. And so physiologically, we're different. Psychologically, we are different. And then here's what's really important. In our personal preferences, we are different. Chris might hate chocolate. I might love it. And Courtney (laughs) might be indifferent to it, right? And, you know, maybe Courtney loves Brussels sprouts and beer. And I like, you you know, oatmeal and blueberries, right? And maybe you thrive on... Um, you know, bacon and eggs. And we're all different that way. So our personal preferences matter. And then our practical circumstances matter, right? Some people, you know, I have access to a Whole Foods. I live in a very sort of, uh, you know, um, health conscious city. But some people live in food deserts where they're shopping out of ExxonMobil stations, right? These things all matter. So we are different in our physiology, psychology, personal preferences, and practical circumstances. And research doesn't and is not able to account for this it's not some large conspiracy theory it's just the limitations of what we're working with so now take that and start to discuss men versus women and the metabolic realities of that and you have these 4p's that really make a difference for all of us but it definitely starts to the first major schism happens between male female when we're talking about metabolism. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense to all the listeners that they can see the complexity of this because I know it's controversial and be like well we're all human we all share a metabolism yes and and it functions largely to the same degree in all of us but those minor differences from male to female make a huge difference and those minor differences between each woman or male makes a big difference and we need to start paying attention to that and truth is the research just isn't there yet to help us really hone in on that. So that's what we're wow. up against.
2: That's great. And, and Courtney and I were talking about this and um, uh, one of the last times we talked about metabolism, about now that you're seeing in changes in metabolism where there are uh, like females, and not just picking on females that are younger and that they are starting to see that you're seeing them being affected heavily in their early 20s, uh, you know, even late teens, early 20s. What do you see as, just in a general uh, sense, some of the main like exogenous uh, toxicities or some of the stresses from the environment that are changing and shifting these like early 20 females in their metabolism? Like some of the main points you would say, these are things you need to consider if you're finding changes in your metabolism at that age. Yeah,
1: I love that question. And you mentioned something that I think we need to just touch on briefly first, and that is stresses. Here's the big misconception about metabolism. The big misconception is metabolism is about calories. Metabolism is not about calories. It is about stress. Yes, it partly cares about calories, but it only cares about calories insofar as the calorie gap between the energy we're taking in and the energy we're burning. That gap is a stress to the metabolism. That's one type of stress. So it cares about calories, but it only cares about, hey, how much calories am I getting in versus how many am I expending and what is the environmental availability of food? So that's one type of stress. Another type of stress is, hey, do I, and this, by the way, is a key uh, sort of factor with females versus males. The other one is what about reproduction? Are there opportunities to reproduce? And is there food available for me to get pregnant, bring a baby to term and support that baby? Which is why I think female metabolism, when you really get into the details of it, is More refined and sensitive compared to men. So that's another stress. You mentioned another stress toxicity in our environments. Persistent Mm -hmm. organic pollutants are probably the most important one as it pertains to some of the hormonal consequences around female and male metabolism. Most of these persistent organic pollutants, which we refer to as POPs for short, persistent organic pollutants, these are things. Chemicals of industry, Uh, all of you listening, you know what these are, right? These are uh, plastics, BPAs, phthalates, these kinds of things. These are coming from industrial runoff. They're coming from the lining in, in the cans we drink out of, the lining in the plastics. They're coming from, you know, pesticides sprayed on crops. And these things are endocrine disruptors. And this is something that, you know, the three of us, you know, we're highly aware of this and we see it a lot, but the larger population is not. These things are having profound impact on hormones in both men and women, primarily in both sexes on the thyroid gland, which is a major wow. metabolic mover. And then secondly, specifically for women and men, men, you need to pay attention to this too. These Most of these things act like estrogens in the body and they can disrupt our own uh, estrogen balance in our body and, and create higher estrogen effects in some tissues and lower estrogen effects in others. And the metabolism does not like that. The metabolism's whole job is to sense and respond to stress to get us back to balance. And so all these different stresses are a big issue. Now, we can add a couple more, by the way, infections, uh, injuries. And by the way, for historic men, which I know you all talk about that a lot, for ancestral human, the the big things that would kill you would be infection, and uh, injury, right? Those, those, and starvation. So the body is responding a lot uh, to those stresses. But I would say to answer your question specifically, there are a lot of toxins to talk about. Persistent organic pollutants are probably the big one. They're having a very big effect on thyroid. Specifically, by the way, for those of you who are nerds with this, I'll tell you specifically what the research tells us. They block thyroid production in the thyroid gland. They block th- thyroid conversion. T4 Mm. going into active T3, and they also enhance elimination of a thyroid hormone. And this study has been done mainly on rats, but it is important research because we can see some of this in humans. And so far as the estrogen effects, these things are interfering with estrogen receptors, stimulating certain tissues too much and stimulating other tissues too little. And this is part of the problem. So then it gets into this idea of, okay, We didn't have these things before. And by the way, they concentrate primarily in um, they concentrate up the environmental chain into animals that are mostly fatty. And so we get a lot of this in the fats um, that we consume, believe it or not. And uh, we need to be aware of this. And it completely disrupts our metabolism. And there are ways to get rid of them. But. it's it's actually fairly difficult. And I'll say just one thing about how to get rid of them, then I'll shut up here. But one of the key things we have found is that um, sweat therapies when it comes to persistent organic pollutants are probably one of the best things we have because when we look at some of the studies on this, we see more of them showing up when we sweat than we do in our feces or our urine or our breath. And so that's one thing that becomes pretty powerful. But it does explain why younger women and men are having... Issues with erections and libido, and difficulty with menstruation, and all of that kind of thing. Part of it, for sure, is these persistent organic pollutants. The other part of it, I would say, is the chronic dieting that our culture is doing.
2: Oh, wow, we made the circle back on that. Go, yeah, that was a good point uh, with the chronic dieting. But, Courtney, go ahead. I'm sorry, yeah, it was just you that's know, such good info. Golly,
0: this is really good, and it. It also makes me think too, because we're seeing so much, you know, you talk about metabolism and the body feeling safe. And, you know, we are seeing a lot of young girls and now we're seeing men that are affected by infertility. I mean, Mm -hmm. in ways we've never seen, like just the sheer number of people that, you know, their bodies are not going to tolerate pregnancy or procreating in any capacity because of that toxic burden that exists. And so you know, we already have this huge disjointed uh, component of the body. And then we expect the body to respond to training. So we want the body to respond and and we want to be able to feel good and build lean muscle and have a strong, robust metabolism. But if our sex hormones are already off and our endocrine system just in general is overburdened with all of these toxicities, and some of them are mimicking other hormones. So there's cross communication on a cellular level, you know, what would you say like the best steps, like. Uh, sauna usage or, you know, maybe infrared sauna. I'm a huge fan of infrared saunas, but before somebody really jumps the gun, because this is what I it just working with clients in the past, you know, people want to see results. So they feel like, okay, if I, if, I'm 25 years old and I don't, and I'm unable to lose weight. You know, I'm young. I should have a thriving metabolism. Then they start that rabbit trail of, well, I'll start cutting out carbs or I'll just count my macros and then I'll start training harder, which we know it just increases stress to the body because mm-hmm. exercise is a stressor. But now we begin a cycle where we had something broken down and we are furthering the breakdown in the body we it, we're just adding to those layers of stress how can somebody unravel this mess? You know, one, the avoidance of toxicity, but where's like step one through three for someone that's just like, that's me. I have met huge metabolic issues you know, identifying what they are and maybe what some steps would be to improving that. Because like you said, I mean, it's, it's just a massive, I don't think anybody, you know, it's, it all comes back to metabolic ability from a cellular level. And I think that that is, that's, that's the biggest area that people are missing and their body will do the work. You know, it's just that we're not working with the right equipment.
1: Yeah. It's really, it's, it's a really astute way of explaining this. It's very well said. Let me, let me start with the, the issue that I think, um, and by the way, this is no one's fault, right? Matter of fact, probably the three of us who have been looking and studying this stuff for a long time fell prey to this. The first part of getting back into uh, metabolic health and function and optimal weight loss and all of that is to realize that when you have a model that is not working, you need to find a new model. So the calories in, calories out model looks at metabolism as a calculator. That's only partially correct. What we've been slow to do in this field is to say, okay, that, that, actually, that doesn't work for whatever reason. It might make sense, it might seem logical, and it, and it probably has, and it does have some validity. But the first stage to answer this question of how we get back to balance is to go, okay, well, if the calculator model is not getting us results, what is a better way to look at metabolism? Well, metabolism is not like a calculator. It's partially like that. It can count calories. For the nerds here, leptin is a way that it counts how many calories you have stored on your body. So it can roughly do that. But a lot of people said, okay, well, that's failing us, right? That calculator model is failing us. So maybe it's all about hormones. Maybe it's more like a chemistry set. But the truth is you can't just take low insulin. We've seen this, right? You can't just lower insulin and lower cortisol and throw in, you know, estrogen and progesterone and see the metabolism turn around. We know this because we used to think if we just give people eight bioidentical HRT, we would be able to turn everything around. If we gave men testosterone replacement therapy, we'd be able to turn everything around. So metabolism does not act like a calculator, nor does it act like a chemistry set. It partly does. Now, we don't necessarily know everything there is to know about metabolism, but right now, probably the best model is that it acts more like a stress barometer and a thermostat. In other words, its major job is to measure and respond to stress, and then it has feedback mechanisms and compensatory mechanisms to try to get back to balance. Mm. Now, once Mm. you know that, you know step one to your question, right? Because you said, Jay, give me one to two to three steps for people to get their metabolism back to balance. First, stop using calories as your tool. And this is what people do. If you think metabolism is a calculator, what you do is you eat less, exercise more. However, if you know that stress, that the metabolism is really a stress barometer and a thermostat, that that's a more accurate way of looking at it, what you do is you go, oh, then I can't eat too little or too much. And I can't eat, I can't exercise too little or too much. So the first piece of getting your metabolism back is to realize that the metabolism measures stress. And the first stress that it measures Remember, we talked about ancestral humans, starvation, infection, injury. So Mm -hmm. it measures the gap between intake and output to see how close it is to starvation and to measure what season it is in. And so as that gap gets bigger, calorie intake to output, the metabolism reacts negatively and it goes, Mm -hmm. "Okay, you're going to cut. You're going to eat less and exercise more Then I'm going to get hungry and have cravings and I'm going to slow metabolic rate. And I'm going to make you less motivated. And I'm going to make your energy unpredictable and unstable. And I'm going to cause fragmented sleep. Sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. It's this little acronym i become famous for called Schmec. When sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings, when Schmeck goes out of check, it's an indication your metabolism is measuring that stress and not liking it. So stage one is mind the calorie gap, right? Make sure it's not too high get it just right and you do that by paying attention to schmeck you do that by not eating too little or too much and not exercising too little or too much and we could talk a little bit more about that in in some details if you guys want but that's step 1 realize that the metabolism is not all or nothing it's more goldilocks it's not as low as possible it's goldilocks not too much not too little but just right that's the first thing that we all need to understand about metabolism yes diet and exercise taken to the extreme is just as stressful as overeating and sitting on the couch when it's taken to the extreme. And we have not recognized that yet and we need to. So that's step one. (laughs) Step two is realizing that you can't go from a couch potato, you know, a Netflix watching couch (laughs) potato donut eating person to a cross-fitting paleo man. You cannot do that. And the reason why is you're going from a calorie gap that looks like this, right? So for those of you who are listening to this, I just have my hand spread far apart. And then uh, uh, to another calorie gap that looks like this. In other words, you can't go from eat less, exercise more, to eat more, exercise less, or vice versa, and expect the metabolism not to react negatively. Isn't it funny that chronic dieters and chronic couch potatoes both are constantly suffering from hunger energy, and cravings. They each have problems with hunger, energy, and cravings. Why? Because both are stressful. So step two is to realize that you want to condition the body to be conditioned. What that means is you don't want to all of a sudden go on a marathon running program, start doing Orange Theory every day, you know, go to CrossFit every, you know, like, you don't want to do the New Year's Eve thing where you're like, you know, on December 31st, I was, you know, a couch potato, and now I'm an exercising, you know, you know, healthy eater. You want to first go, I'm just going to start walking more and I'm going to cut down the junk food. Walking does a couple things, sensitizes the body to insulin like nothing else and simultaneously lowers cortisol levels. Cortisol is probably the biggest hidden stressor to the metabolism. And so what we do is we, we institute a walking program, get ourselves walking again, lower cortisol, sensitize the body to insulin, get the mitochondria awake again, and began to cut down the junk food. This is where a lot of people make a mistake. Carbs include vegetables. It's not so much that carbs are evil, it's that it's the junk food carbs that are loaded with fat, salt, sugar, alcohol. This combination of food hijacks our brains and makes us want to eat more, these highly palatable foods. So first, cut down the highly palatable foods and start walking. I call this metabolic prehab. A lot of people are familiar with rehab, right? It's like if I break a leg or something, I got to go through rehab. Well, prehab means I'm going to do something to keep my leg from breaking. Athletes do this spring training. We need to do the same with our metabolism. We need to say, we're just going to start walking and eating slightly better and give ourselves about four months of that. Meanwhile, at the same time, and this gets to your Question Courtney about sweat therapies. I do think at this point, when you're doing metabolic prehab, this walking and this sort of cutting down the junk foods, you probably want to institute some type of sweat therapy if possible. And here's why when we begin to lose fat, guess where those persistent organic pollutants are stored in our fat tissue? This is known very well. This has been studied inside and out. When we lose fat, those things go way up in our system. They start showing up in our blood like crazy because our fat cells are releasing them as the fat is burning. And then what do they do? They irritate the hypothalamus, they interfere with thyroid function, and they have a deleterious effect on estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone communication. Mm. So what we wanna do is try to get some of those out before we start losing a lot of fat and during when we start losing fat, right? Mm. So we start that process. And then step three, now we're finally where most people think they should start. And that is now you begin to exercise and start to really cut down on calories. And you do that, in my opinion, by not doing what most people do, because guess what's a stress? It's stressful to go, I have to not do this, not do that, not do this, avoid this food, avoid that food, mm-hmm. avoid this. Another form of toxicity is this health, uh, health craziness toxicity. If you think, if you're so worried about everything that you can't eat and all the toxins in the world, you're stressing yourself out further. So instead, focus on what you should be doing. And we have good research on this as well. There are two or three things that you can do with diet. One is up your protein intake. Protein is the most satiating macronutrient. And when you add fat, especially good fats to protein, it even amplifies that hunger suppression even more. So get good fats on board with good quality protein. I like to just have my my patients count grams of protein, right? If you're somebody, this is an easy way to do this. Think about how much you want to weigh, eat that amount of grams of protein daily, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm 225 pounds. I would like to be, let's say 215. I start eating 215 grams of protein per day. One thing is going to happen with that, by the way, most people aren't going to be able to eat that much, which is kind of the point. So don't be afraid to leave food on your plate. Then the other thing is then just say, hey, I'm going to eat two salads every day, two large salads every day. And maybe one more thing. I'm going to drink four liters of water every day. So you focus on what you should do one to three things that accidentally create the calorie deficit that you need to lose the weight. That's your one, two, three. Step one realize you're not a calculator, you're a stress barometer or thermostat. Stop exerc- over exercising and under eating. Step two begin walking, sweating, and cutting out junk food for a month or so then get your your body ready. Now you begin to diet and exercise in a way that is sustainable. And I have a final thing to say here that most people don't understand. Eat less, exercise more works only for a very short period of time. This is what people don't understand. The metabolism likes to be flexible and changeable. You can't do the same thing over and over again. And so two to four weeks of eat less, exercise more. And then you need a diet break. And, you know, to me, I I define the diet break as I kind of use a term I call eat less, exercise less. That means after a period of time of eat less, exercise more, you go into back to walking and just lots of salads and clean eating. Then you give yourself two weeks off. Then you go back to eat less, exercise more. Or if you want to go, if you're an athlete and you want to go the other way, then ramp up your food intake to match your exercise output, what I call eat more, exercise more, then go back to eat less, exercise more. See the difference there? Most people do it in a, in, a, in a situation where they stay on eat less, exercise more indefinitely. That does not work. It never has worked, actually. And we have the research to show us that. It's the reason why nobody goes back to four reunion shows on The Biggest Loser. It's why we have data that says 95% of dieters fail gain the weight back after three years doing eat less exercise more. It doesn't work long-term. This is a better way. So that's a big, long-winded answer to your question, but those would be the three places I would start. And you can see it's very, very different than what most people think.
2: That's amazing though, with the way that you broke it down though. I mean, especially like with the misconception of like the, you know, eat more, eat less calories and uh, the numbers game within how to lose weight. Now, with that, with the amount of stress and cortisol and insulin creating that change in metabolism make you gain weight. Do you see in culture too, that it's people in a sense are hardwired to believe that, uh, if you are, um, if you don't work out enough, you're going, you're not going to lose enough weight. What I'm trying to get at is the hardwiring, like most people think that uh, this is my genetics, this is how it's supposed to be. But if they just realized that, These simple steps you're talking about, starting to take a walk, doing these things and staggering the metabolic challenges can actually cause um, a change. Do you guys, do you see that there is a a, a general notion within our culture that people think like, this is my genetics, this is how it's going to be. But they never realized that it was the stress and the cortisol that's the biggest thing that could change their metabolism. And how do people change their mindset? Like, I mean, I'm not asking how to, but have you seen it starting to change in our culture?
1: Well, you're 100%, right? And I have started to see it changing. And you know how it's changing? Partly because of the three of us having conversations like this mm-hmm. and people realizing that the model was broken and trying to find different ways of doing this. And so um, I'll, I'll give you an example of this, though, because you bring up genetics, and it's really important that we, we bust this myth because I do think what happens is the human brain, like if you and I and everyone else in the industry started having this conversation, What we often think is people won't change. Yes, they do. When we, when, when they definitely change when, uh, and this gives you a hint, by the way, when back in the eighties, you know, I'm a child of the eighties, but back in the eighties, it was no fat, stop eating fat, right? No one should eat fat. Guess what happened? Fat intake went down. Guess what happened? Uh, you know, people's weight went up. Then it was stop eating carbs, right? And guess what happened? People stopped eating carbs and guess what happened? Weight went up. Right. And so what happens is, is that we have to go, okay, maybe it's not singling out certain things. Maybe it's, we're working on the wrong model prior to that, by the way, it was calories, calories, calories. So 80s, the whole point of cutting down fat was calories, right? When it switched over to carbs, that was more of a chemistry set model. Oh, cut out the carbs Mm. for, for insulin. So it's really about helping people understand the right mechanism. Second um, to your point is that people need to understand that we humans don't look the way we look because of what we're doing, right? Like Michael Phelps does not look the way he looks because he's swimming constantly. He, he mostly looks the way he looks because he was born <laughs> that way. In other words, we don't look the way we look because of what we do. We do what we do because of the way we look. Here's an example. I, uh, my first sport I ever played was soccer. I could not stand it. I was winded constantly. I could not keep up. I have, I am type two dominated muscle fibers. I was a big muscular kid even then. It was a struggle for me. I did not like it. I was not built like any of the kids that were good on, that, on those teams. The next year, my dad asked me, you want to go back out for soccer? I said, no. He put me in football. And boy, did I thrive in football. These short, powerful bursts. Later on in my life, by the way, my brother was a distance runner and it thrived at track and would have been a great soccer player. Later on, we did our genetic testing. And lo and behold, I have the sprinter gene. He has the endurance runner gene. Lo (laughs) and behold, I'm a fast oxidizer of coffee. He's a slow oxidizer of caffeine. And we found these very core differences. And so we have to understand that most people are not going to look like Michael Phelps by swimming like crazy. That's another thing that's problematic. And then the third part I say about this is that There are some people who do respond to diet and exercise in the way we all wish we did. They're in the minority, and it Mm -hmm. is based on genetics. For example, I'll give you a study on women that is one of my favorite studies to quote. Mm -hmm. And this was on perimenopausal and postmenopausal women. They had uh, This is the alpha and beta trials, by the way, in Canada. This is a large group of women. And what they essentially did is they said, we don't want you to change your diet at all. But what we want you to do is one group of you is going to run on a treadmill jog for 30 minutes, five days per week. Another group is going to do it for 45 minutes, five days per week. And the third group is going to do it for 60 minutes, five days per week. And that's a lot of action. For me, even 30 minutes of jogging is miserable and then having to do it five days per week. Okay, (laughs) So imagine the amount of exercise that what they're expending here. And they follow these women for a year. This was a very long study. They said, make no conscious change in your diet. Okay. Guess what happened? 25% of those women lost weight. 9% lost more than predicted. The other ones lost less than predicted. But guess what happened to the other 75%? 50% of those women did not lose any weight at all. And another 25%, 26.6 in the study, actually gained weight as a result of this. Now, imagine doing all that jogging on a treadmill for a year and gaining weight as a result. So then you go, well, Jade, how's that possible? Just like we talked about, the calorie model of metabolism is absolutely 100% wrong. If you're hearing it for the first time here, trust me, it won't be the first time you hear it because we are starting to catch up. What happened was that stressed out a certain segment, 75% of those women got a stress response from all that jogging. Uh-huh. And what does the stress response do? creates changes in Schmeck, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. It threw Schmeck out of check. What they found happened with these women is they compensated with extra calories through diet as a result of the aerobic exercise they were doing. Some compensated enough to wash out any weight loss change. Others compensated over and above to actually gain weight. And yes, about 9% actually had more weight loss results than would have been predicted, and 25% did end up losing some weight. And this goes to your point about genetics matter and they matter a lot. However, for those of you who are uh, confused by this and thinking, oh my God, Jade, you just like threw my whole world out then there's nothing I can do. Yes, you can. Remember what I said about Schmeck, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. If you can just remember that, you'll know when the exercise you're doing is causing you to start to compensate. It's a beautiful thing. You don't need to know all the the different hormones, you know, GIP and GLP and leptin and thyroid and, you know, PYY and, you know, uh, all, all of these things. All you need to know is, is my Schmeck in check or out of check? If my Schmeck is in check, then I could be relatively sure that I have good hormonal balance, which is the other side of the weight loss equation, by the way, you need two things to lose fat, calorie deficits and sustained calorie deficits. Well, where do the sustained calorie deficits come from? hormonal balance. And when I say hormonal balance, I mean primarily cortisol, insulin, leptin, thyroid, and yes, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. But this is what we need to be thinking about. If you can just think, those of you listening and say, is what I'm doing, keeping my schmeck in check or not? If it is, you've got one half of the equation, right? If your schmeck is in check, then go at it. Cut carbs if you want, or cut fat, or cut any calorie source you want. You're acting from a position of strength. But if your schmeck is out of check and you cut calories further, you're heading in the very wrong direction and you're going to end up like 75% of those women did in that study. And so this is why it's so important that the three of us are having conversations like this. And by the way, I don't know everything there is to know about this, but there are amazing researchers doing this work. For, for example, Herman Ponzer uh, is out of Duke University. He's someone who is, uh, is one of the person who has helped us understand that when we overexercise, we don't burn calories the way we think. It used to be thought that if our resting metabolic rate is 2,000 calories per day, and we go out and run and burn 300 calories, we used to think then that's a total burn of 2,300 calories, right? That's how most people think. They think in terms of additive. 2,000 is my basal metabolic rate. I burn 300, so I must have burned 2,300 calories. It's not the way it works, actually. After about several weeks, a couple months, your metabolism goes, okay, we're not going to That 2,300 calories, we're going to rob from other places. We're going to budget. We can't afford that. We think we're starving. So we're going to constrain metabolism in a way that keeps metabolism from burning that. So you think you're burning 2,300 calories. Now you're only burning 2,100 calories, right? So what do you do? Oh, you eat less and exercise even more, right? And this is going to go to Courtney's point about plateaus and things like that. So you eat less and exercise even more, and maybe you get a little bump for a short period of time, but now you're only burning 2,000 calories because the metabolism constrains. Why is the metabolism doing that? Cause it thinks it's starving. It does not like that calorie gap that way. And so what it's doing is trying to buffer and protect you. It doesn't realize there's foods on every corner. It's acting as if it's in the, ans- the ancestral human land. It thinks it's still a hunter gatherer. So it's just going, you're trying to starve me. I better consume. It thinks it's protecting you and it's responding to stress. So you need to take the stress off the system. By the way, one way to take the stress off the system when you hit a plateau is guess what? Do things to reduce stress. What would those things be? Hot baths, sex and physical affection, time with loved ones, long walks in the green woods, you know, things that make you go, ah, this is so relaxing. But how many people do that? I'll give the listeners a hint here about metabolism to wrap this part up, and then we'll see where you guys want to go. But most people think that metabolism is just about eating and exercising. I call that meals and metabolics, right? Metabolics being exercise and what you're eating being meals. So they just think there's these two parts and they go, well, I got to watch my meals and I got to watch my metabolics. What they don't realize is there's two other aspects to metabolism that are perhaps more important for most people. Now, of course, this is individualized. So that's why I say perhaps. But the two other parts are mindfulness slash mindset, everything that lowers stress and movement. So in other words, there's four parts to metabolism for those of you listening who really want to begin to make a difference in your metabolism, and they are mindfulness, movement, meals, and metabolics. Now, we need to make a distinction real quick because probably if you're paying attention, you're going, well, Jade, if metabolics is exercise, isn't that the same as movement? What we now know from research is that activities of daily living, like going from point A to point B to point C, doing the dishes, doing the laundry, taking out the garbage, All of that is what we call NEAT, non-exercise associated uh, thermogenesis or non-exercise activity thermogenesis, activities of daily living. That makes up about 15 to 20% of total metabolism. That's different and needs to be considered differently than exercise or metabolics, which only make up about 5%. That's how come I say, if you really want to lose weight and you're stuck right now, the best thing to do is start doing a lot more relaxing activity, go for a lot more walks, Usually exercise less, not more. And then all of a sudden, your meals tend to c- take care of themselves because you're not hungry as hungry and craving everything in sight. What a lot of people don't know is that their overexercising habit is causing their cheesecake habit. And they don't realize that that's the case. And that is the case for 75% of us. Totally.
0: This- I just love how you, you just like <laughs> so mic good. dropped on that because that's, <laughs> I mean- It is true. And it's a cycle. And I've, I have been guilty of this, but I know there's so many other women too, because what happens is that you binge on something you're, you know, you're under recovered. So you don't sleep well. So then you get up and you start having cravings. So then you overeat and then you feel bad thinking, well, I can't skip the gym because you know, I've just been binging on all of this food. So now you get back in the cycle of hitting the gym. And so now your body is even more tired and it's, it wasn't recovered before it's definitely not recovered now. So that catabolic state of breakdown just stays in effect. And before you know it, You're miserable. You know, you have no energy. You're probably brain fogged. You're tired. You're unhappy with the way you look and feel and nothing's working right. And you're trying. And that's the thing that gets so frustrating is that, you know, you feel like I'm not lazy. I'm actually trying, but I see that I'm failing in so many different areas and my body's not responding. So I love how you really touch on that. Sometimes the best thing you can do is get out of your own way and allow your body to not experience so much stress, then start layering in some of the extra metabolic support. Some of the stuff that's going to help you build lean muscle tissue, but you're doing it in a way that your body can respond well, and not in a poor way where it just continues to drive more inflammation and more stress on the system. So,
1: yeah, and you know what, Courtney, check this out. And Chris, check this out. This is what's really interesting about women. During men- near menses, women are, estrogen and progesterone, I like to think of them as like Joan of Arc. Estrogen is the suit of armor, gives a little more protection to the metabolism. What's it protecting against? Stress. Estrogen helps the body deal with cortisol. When estrogen is around, Women are more insulin sensitive and less cortisol reactive. Progesterone is kind of like the shield. It does some of that, but it it makes the body more insulin resistant. And by the way, you might think, well, why would progesterone make the body more insulin resistant? Well, progesterone comes after ovulation. A baby might be coming along. Metabolism is smart. Progesterone goes, hey, a baby might be coming. Let's leave a little bit of blood fat, triglycerides, and a little bit of blood sugar in case that egg gets fertilized, right? Mm -hmm. But what happens at menses, the suit of armor comes off and the shield gets dropped, Right. Menses is a mini is a mini menopause for women. So all of a sudden at Menses, women are going through this little miniature menopause, estrogen and progesterone drop away. This is Joan of Arc without her suit of armor and without her shield. She is so much more stress sensitive at this point. And this is the time where women should not be over exercising. This is the time where women should be taking an extra hour in bed rather than an extra hour on the treadmill. This is a very, you know, sensitive time. And just knowing that I've had For years before I knew this, I did not understand why I could have a woman making progress all month long. And all of a sudden, it's like all that progress was just wiped away in one week. And, you know, for me, my ignorant, arrogant self, I'm thinking, what's wrong with them? It's a real physiological response to the lack of these hormones that help women deal with stress. Um, and by the way, it, this happens with men too so men don't think you're you're um, you you can escape this you just don't have it happening every month but chronic stress on men also lowers testosterone so it becomes this never-ending vicious cycle. you're stressed, testosterone gets lowered you start trying to do more stress yourself out further testosterone gets lowered right One difference by the way, this is just an interesting aside that I think you two might know, but it's just interesting. women under stress it's really interesting what happens testosterone, men who are under stress, testosterone tends to fall. Women who are under stress, testosterone tends to rise. Estrogen and progesterone fall. Testosterone rises with insulin and cortisol. And what's interesting is the reason women have smaller waists than men is estrogen and progesterone are really beautiful at creating that hourglass shape. As women have more testosterone exposure and cortisol exposure together, and this is research by Apple et al. There's actually a really cool paper on this showing women who are stress sensitive, release more cortisol and testosterone and have larger bellies, even when they're thin. And they call these uh, high waist to hip ratio women who are more stress sensitive. And this happens mm-hmm. to all women around menses, by the way, Two, one of the things happens at uh, ovulation for women, estrogen and estrogen is rising just before ovulation, then it falls gently before progesterone kind of peaks. Testosterone goes up to to drive women to be interested in sex. And what's really interesting about that is they're interested in slightly different men compared to the other side of their menstrual cycle. But then at menses, you have the testosterone pop up again because estrogen, and progesterone fall and you get an unmasking of testosterone. So you oftentimes will have these two periods of time where one period where testosterone is elevated along with estrogen and progesterone. And another time where testosterone is elevated without estrogen and progesterone. And the reason I bring that up is because hormones behave differently depending on who they're socializing with. They act like people in that sense. So when estrogen and progesterone and testosterone are socializing together, it's an amazing time for women. They tend to be highly motivated at this time. They tend to be able to handle stress really well. It's like Joan of Arc with a suit of armor, a shield and a sword now because testosterone is up. But on the other side of the equation, when estrogen and progesterone are down, now she doesn't have her armor or her shield, and she's just got, you know, testosterone, but it's more like a knife now, not a sword. And I think if women can keep that vision in their head, they know there are certain times where they got to pay way more attention. And for you women who are menopausal listening to this, you're kind of in that state permanently. Now, you shouldn't get, you shouldn't be like, oh, my God, Jade, why did you tell me that I'm all upset? It's actually really nice to know this, because now that you know this, you can make a couple really nice shifts. One, cut down your stress, become you know, more motherly to yourself. I mean, take care of yourself, spa days, M- make sure you are taking it all because you don't have estrogen and progesterone there to help you as much. So you have to be the one to take care of yourself. Really self-love, support, do all the things you love to take stress off the system. Next, even though testosterone falls to it, menopause, you tend to be a little bit more testosterone dominating. So now add in resistance training instead of doing all the cardio stuff, a little bit more resistance training, a little less cardio. And by the way, because you're more insulin resistant at this stage, maybe try cutting down the carbs rather than as your primary way to cut calories. Those three changes at menopause are huge. One, start reducing stress. Two, cut carbs as your major way to cut calories. And three, add resistance training in, and you'll be amazed by what happens at, to your menopausal metabolism versus doing the old "eat less, exercise more, run a lot more, eat you know, cut calories and run." That's not what you want here, and it's not what you want during menses either.
2: I'm telling you, like again, like my drop, doc. I mean, it's like the, the idea of like when you said that their circumference of their waist can get larger, even though that uh, because of the hormone changes, and I can explain to these ladies like why this is happening. I mean. That in itself, I mean, just learning from that, like everybody that's listening right now, I mean, that just made my mind go on 100 miles an hour. I've got, I'm like sitting there trying <laughs> to down just to record this. This is really good. Courtney, do you – I mean, like I was going to ask a question. I hope I'm not – I don't want to change gears too much. But um, so when you're saying this, like I like that aspect about how you're saying like if they're going into – you know, menopausal area, and they have different aspects of how to exercise and how to treat their metabolism. In your book, do you, um, of course, do you map that out? You already told us what you've said now, but do you have like a map in your book about how people in different stages, uh, especially ladies can sort of map out their metabolism training and such? Do you have that in your book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, this is a really controversial piece of my work. What I do clinically, what I've always done, and like the three of us know, but I think the listeners will get com- confused with this. But what we tend to do when we're working clinically is we tend to see patterns, right? So we, all, we already talked about the idea that we're all different. So really, there's, not, there's, there's infinite number of hormone types. All of us have a unique hormonal fingerprint, men and women. But what I do, uh, what I teach women in next level metabolism, and by the way, this book, I'm just want to give a a little bit of an understanding for those who go get this book. This is not a diet book. This is more like um, a textbook on metabolism. So just be ready for that. If you're a lay person and and are going to get this book, I did it mainly for professionals. But for those who are really interested, you can understand what we're talking about here. But. Ultimately, um, what ends up happening is I I basically help women understand the different stages of hormones that they're in. For example, a younger woman is going to be in a cyclical stage, estrogen dominant in the first part of her menstrual cycle, estrogen and progesterone in the second part of her menstrual cycle. And then they both disappear at the end. And you're like in this little mini. Um, So I call that hormone stage one. There's also women who have, because of stress, progesterone tends to be the first hormone to be hit by stress. So there's women Mm -hmm. who are progesterone deficient. There's also women who are more estrogen dominant for a number of ways, reasons. If you don't ovulate, um, you're not you're gonna have you're not gonna have progesterone kick in. That's a form of estrogen dominance. If you have too many pops, that's a form of estrogen dominance. If your liver mm-hmm. isn't detoxifying estrogens appropriately, that's a form of estrogen dominance. So that's a very particular clinical entity. Then of course, you got perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause, which are really three different hormonal types. So what I do is I explain these different types so we can bucket this vast, infinite differences between people and say, it's not perfect, but we're gonna bucket you into about seven different types. And then from there, we're going to teach you how to measure Schmeck and adjust calories and use what I call the AIM process, assess, investigate, modify, like a detective. I teach you to become a metabolic detective, to read what your body's doing. So from that hormonal starting point, we can home in on your exact hormonal fingerprint. So we have to be very careful Whenever we use diagnostic tools like this, because there are no such thing as seven hormone types, the way I describe it in my book. What the benefit of that is, is to give you a good starting place, a better guess than just winging it. And from there, begin to teach you how to become a metabolic detective, read the biofeedback signals on your body, help understand whether you're getting results or not, and then adjust, tweak sleuth, like a detective, to get the results. So yes, all that is in um, the book. But I'll give you a shortcut to this, by the way. Here's the the shortcut. Let's say you're listening to this and you're like, Jay, this all sounds really complicated. Then here's all you really need to know. Start wherever you want, right? I am program and diet agnostic. I don't care. You want to be primal, perfect. Paleo, perfect. You want to be vegan, vegetarian, perfect. You want to do keto, perfect. Intermittent fasting, perfect. Do whatever you want. The proof is in the pudding, though. Right? If it keeps your schmeck in check and your body fat and body composition are remaining or attaining an optimal body composition. And when I go look at your, your vitals, your blood labs, cholesterol, hemoglobin A1C, fasting, insulin, all this kind of stuff, if all three of those are true, then whatever you chose is perfect. But if they're not true, you've got the wrong program for you. And, it, and your metabolism could care less whether, you, whether you're biased towards vegetarian or not. It's going to do what it does right? So you you could be a vegetarian if you want, and then your metabolism is going to tell you very quickly whether that's working for you or not. You could be primal if you want, your metabolism is going to tell you whether that's working or not. So each of us have to give up our biases and our dogma, in my opinion, around diet and exercise and realize our bodies are unique and they're going to tell us what we should be doing. And instead, we try to force what we want to be doing on the metabolism. Mm -hmm. You cannot win a battle of wills against the metabolism. It It will beat the crap out of you. You can't do that. You have got to start working with it rather than against it. And using, and this is going to be controversial. And you two can tell me what you think about this. Because to be honest, I can use your advice on this. And we could all talk about this because it's tricky in our industry. There's books to sell. There's gurus. There's podcasts. We all know what this is like. And and we love it too, right? I love sitting here having these conversations with you too. But what we I think we have to understand is that when you try to outsource the learning of your unique metabolism to someone like Jade Tita... You're doing it wrong. I cannot tell you what works for your metabolism. You are the only person who can. And so, the faster you start studying yourself and stop studying the latest diet, the latest guru, the latest book, the latest blog, the latest podcast, the faster you're actually going to start getting results. And I realize, you know, I'm taking money out of my hands. I sell programs and stuff, but I'm hoping that the next diet fad is going to be do what works for you. And that's really what I teach. And that's what my book teaches.
0: Man, I mean, this episode is fire. I just have to say. <laughs> I know there's so much
2: good info. Golly. You know,
0: and I think like, this is how you can tell, like I have been following and I have probably mentioned this like three times already, but I've been following you, Dr. Jade for a long time and I've learned so much because you're an incredible teacher. And I love that you aren't ever just trying to sell one angle. You're trying to teach people to fish. So you're not delivering them the meal on a silver platter. It's guys, I just want you to understand you on a different level because only then will you experience breakthrough. Only then will it be easy for you. If right now you're just white knuckling everything. And it's like the diet, the exercise, the programs, the supplements, all of the stuff, which You know, we've all probably fallen prey to that at some point where it's like, well, if I can just get the algorithm just right, like the right formula, then I will see the results I'm looking for. But until you can understand on a much deeper level what's happening internally, like what the infrastructure of your body is capable of doing and what makes Mm. it unique, that's where you're going to all of a sudden realize like, you are working with your body. I love that, you know, winning the the battle of, of your metabolism, like you will never beat your biology. You just no, you won't. won't. So I, I love that you are so committed to that, that that is your mission. That's exactly what our mission is too. I mean, as the Institute, this is this is where this the, the Ancient Health Institute was birthed from, you know, and, and Josh having this vision of wanting to educate people with the real tools, the stuff that actually works. And so you know, we're, we're so in alignment on that and I hope people feel empowered, you know, and it takes a lifetime to figure it out. The three of us have, you know, we do this for a living and it excites us and we're passionate about it, but we're still learning. Like there's every season of life is uncharted territory for myself and for you guys. And so we're always having to go back to those fundamentals and those core principles of our biology and really say, okay, How's our body responding to this? Because what worked for me, you know, a year ago or six months ago might not be the best approach right now in this season of my life. I've never been in this season of my life. So I need to reevaluate so that I can make sure that my body is always equipped to respond to heal and not to just keep driving a square peg into a round hole thinking we're going to get a different result. So I I just love like everything that you have touched on today today. I mean, we could unpack all of those, I feel like, into many episodes, but I'm fired up.
2: (laughs) I I am too. I think it's 100% on what you said. I really think that with the the way that you described and through your programs and on your social media platforms about how you said the biofeedback of the body, and I think that In healthcare, I think we're seeing that transition where as practitioners, we're trying to be on a journey with individuals. Like you're saying like, hey, you can try paleo, you can try primal, you can try any of these things, but if it doesn't match up with SMAC, if it doesn't accentuate your biofeedback um, uh, balance mechanisms or the representation of what it's doing to your body, then you may have to shift when you're trying to find your metabolism. And I think that's great because I think education online is getting to where most people are now saying... And you need to take some of that power into your own hands. And that's why we want to do education online and interview individuals that have this information. I mean, we can tell you're passionate about it, Doc. And I mean, you go at it, and I love it because I mean, I, I could just sit there and write notes all day with you telling us about metabolism. And I, the, the steps, you make it nice and easy to understand. So that's one thing I love about it, about listening to your own body. and I think it's how it is in the Institute. We, we, we talk about Chinese medicine, we talk about Ayurvedic, but really in a sense, we're always trying to see how can you bring your body, like you're talking about into a balanced state. Like, you know, when you're saying like, Oh, I want to go to the extremes of like, it really doesn't work that well when you do it that way. But we're so thankful for this information because it is, it's gold.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for you all as well. And I'll, I'll say one more thing before we wrap up, keep in mind for those listening, um, we're having more and more tools every day, come on board to help you do this detective work, continuous Mm -hmm. glucose monitoring, you know, um, keto monitors, uh, I'm wearing an aura ring, you know, to Mm -hmm. measure HRV and things like that. Right. So uh, as part of becoming a metabolic detective, just remember there's lots of other tools you can use that help you um, other than just biofeedback and Schmeck. But uh, Chris, it's so nice to meet you, my friend. Cordy it's so good to finally see you um, online here and please give my uh, goodwill to uh, Dr. Axe and please tell him I appreciate him as well. Oh man, we will do that.
0: Okay. So, for all of our listeners that are now like huge fans, where can they find you? How can they engage with you? Uh, you have so many resources and your new book is incredible. And like I said, I mean, whether it's, you know, geared more for practitioners, I think you have an incredible gift of simplifying things that can yes. feel, feel yes. very uh, like they, they can feel just overwhelming to the average person. And I was that person years ago. And I felt like you opened the door for me to kind of feel like this is something that I can actually wrap my head around. So, you know, your book, um, is awesome. And then you have next level human next level metabolism metabolism is the new book, but give us like the full rundown of the full Dr. Jade experience where we can get our hands on, you know, what you're working on.
1: Now You're so kind. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, you know what? You guys can find me. I spend a lot of time on social media at Jade Tita. I do love to teach. And so social media does give us an, a way to teach, even with its downsides, as we all know. But I saw so I'm there. Instagram is probably the best place to find me at Jade Tita. Um, my website, jadetita.com. Um, Next Level Human is my podcast. And um, I have two areas that I teach in of uh, personal development and physical uh, development. And so Next Level Human is my personal development side of things. And Next Level Metabolism and Metabolic.com is where I do my metabolism stuff. And Metabolic.com has not quite launched yet, but you'll see that soon. But JTTA.com, Next Level Human podcast and at JTTA on Instagram are the best places to find me. And um, if you come on over there, please DM me, say hi, you know, tell me that you, you heard me on the podcast and I'd love to answer questions for you for sure if I can get to them. Just give me a sec because it takes a while. I do have a lot, a lot of DMs, but I do try to answer those because it, 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 uh, it's just nice to be able to connect with everybody.
2: Uh, such a pleasure, Doc. This was a great interview. I've learned so much and I'm just, uh, I'm going to be more of a student of yours. This is great. This was a great conversation.
1: Yeah, the is mine, Chris. Thank you, my friend.
2: Really great. I'm just saying I learned so much. I know I've got to catch up. I've got to just, mm-hmm. I'm, I've got to just start re- reading more and more about your my metabolic programs and such. This is going to be awesome.
1: Thank you.
0: Yeah, if this episode has served you in any way, make sure you like it, subscribe, make sure you're following Dr. Jade. Uh, we're excited that we're able to share this information with you, that he graciously shared his time with us and his expertise. So make sure you send it to somebody if you know it, it will help them. And thanks for joining us.